Parts? O'Reilly Auto Parts has parts. Need them fast? We've got fast. No matter what you need, we have thousands of professional parts people doing their part to make sure you have it. Product availability. Just one part that makes O'Reilly stand apart. The professional parts people. Oh, 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 O'Reilly Auto Parts. Outdoor adventure won't wait for engine problems. Things like hard starts, rough performance, and lost fuel economy are often caused by fuel gum and varnish buildup. Seafoam can help your engine run better and last longer. You simply pour a can into your gas tank. Hunters and anglers rely on seafoam to keep their engines running the way it should the entire season. So pick up a can of seafoam today at your local auto parts store or visit seafoamworks.com to learn more. Welcome to the Wired to Hunt podcast, your home for deer hunting news, stories, and strategies. And now, your host, Mark Kenyon. Welcome to the Wired to Hunt podcast. I'm your host, Mark Kenyon, and this is episode number 225. And today in the show, we're joined by Tom Ware, a former outfitter and one of the most consistently successful mature buck hunters in the country. And before we get started, big thank you to Lacrosse Boots for their support of this week's episode. I've been wearing Lacrosse rubber boots for all of my whitetail hunts since I was, I'm pretty sure, in early high school. And despite my baby face, that was actually a long time ago. Over all those years, I'm thinking it's almost two decades now, I've not yet been disappointed. I've always worn rubber boots to maintain as scent-free of a footpath as possible and to stay dry when crossing wet areas and, of course, stay warm. And my lacrosse, they, they just simply have done that for me over and over while also being very comfortable to hike around in too. So if you'd like to learn more about my favorite knee-high rubber hunting boots, head on over to lacrossefootwear.com. And with that, welcome to the Wired to Hunt podcast brought to you by Onyx. And today on the show, we've got Tom Ware. And Tom is is pretty well known in the whitetail hunting world these days because of his work with our friends over at Drury Outdoors. He's been featured in their videos and shows for quite some time now. And of everyone they've had on the cast there, he's been one of the guys that have just been getting the job done year after year after year more consistently than almost anyone else I've seen out there. And with that being the case, today I wanted to get him on the show to to just get a better idea of exactly how he does that. And the conversation ended up being great. Now, Tom is a guy who owns and manages his own land, so we do spend a good amount of time talking about his management and habitat improvement ideas. And yes, he kills some giant deer that a lot of us in other parts of the country, or maybe those of us who hunt public land, you know, we're just not going to be seeing deer like that ourselves. But I do think there are ideas and lessons learned here that we can all learn from and apply to our own hunting situations in one way or another, You know, regardless of if that's in Iowa or Georgia, Maine or Texas. So 
we cover a lot of stuff today and we, we touch on things such as how he tracks individual bucks, how he learns and hunts specific deer. We talk about food plot placement. We talk about different habitat ideas. We talk about the value of having smaller food plots versus larger. We talk about summer preparations, uh, handling the moment of truth, all sorts of interesting things. We kind of go all over the place, but I think you're going to enjoy it. So with that said, before we get Tom Ware on the line with us, though, we do need to take a little bit of time to uh, to go off on our usual pregame tangents. So if you're uh, if you're new to the show and don't care about what's new in my life or uh, my buddy Dan Johnson, you might want to fast forward about 15-20 minutes. If you are a longtime listener, though, you'll want to stick around. I do have my good buddy Dan Johnson back for our pregame show, and and I gotta tell you, Dan, I'm excited because pretty soon here, like. For me, four weeks, four weeks from now, these pregame shows are going to take on a much more uh, higher degree of importance because uh, we're going to be talking about actually hunting. Can you believe that? Yeah. I got four weeks worth of exercises and losing a little bit of weight and shooting my bow before I make uh, like a 14-hour drive to Colorado to chase some elk, man. How on a scale of 1 to 10? How excited are you? Dude, this is crazy. I should be jacked, right? But I'm not because I'm so busy with life right now that it's probably good, right? I'm, <laughs> yeah. get, I'm, get, I'm getting my workouts in. I'm kind of changing my diet a little bit, um, you know, laying off, laying off the sugar and, and all that stuff and uh, just thinking about it but not like going overboard with it. Uh, I'll save that for probably the week of, (laughs) but yeah. Yeah. It's funny. I feel I'm the exact same way. I've got Montana whitetail and Montana elk and I feel like there's just so much going on. I haven't even hardly been able to plan anything or figure anything out. Um, so I haven't even, yeah, I'm not to the point where I'm like overly excited. It's more so like just get through the next week and then I'll think about the week after that and then the week after that. Um, but it is nuts that it's, 30 days away or so and we're gonna be bow in hand man of all the things that i'm excited about right now i'm gonna have to say that what is getting me jacked up the most is this saturday evening and sunday i will be setting tree stands and checking trail cameras for the first time so i'm thinking a lot about that to be honest with you okay so the cameras have been soaking for probably almost a month, isn't that right? Um, let's see. No, um, all of July, so seven weeks. Okay, yeah, it's a pretty good long spell. So, have you you haven't been back to the property at all, right? Nope, nope, have not. How many cameras? I have six cameras out. Okay, I think yeah, six how, cameras. How many of those will not be working properly when you go check them? <laughs> If you Be just jinxed me, I'm driving to <laughs> Michigan to kick your butt. <laughs> but you know how it goes, right? Go in with low expectations. Assume that something will be wrong, and then you'll yeah. feel okay if it's not. So if anything's wrong, I don't know. I don't want to say I don't want to say it's like the trail camera or me or whatever. But I'm that guy now who I'll set my trail camera. I'll walk around, do funny movements in front of it to try to trigger it. I'll go back and check it, make sure that it's, it's triggered and then I'll leave. Yeah, right. That, that's so smart. that's smart. 
Yeah. So I make sure it's working before I before I leave, and then from there, man, it's uh, it's just you know. God, now that you got me thinking about that, it really just <laughs> kind of ruined my night. <laughs> because I would I would flip out if that happened. Yeah. Oh man. I mean, how many times I mean, that's happened to me so many times over the years. I just go into it like assuming that maybe a quarter or a fifth of of something's going to go wrong, whether it be the card or or something. It just seems like you can't get a perfect card pull almost ever, at least for me. Um Dude. If you have enough cameras out. Yeah. Knock on wood. I've had anytime there's been a malfunction in the past, like three or four years, it's been because I have made that mistake, not the camera. So, I mean, I've been blessed with some pretty good card pulls in the last couple of years, uh, aside from when I keep it on setup and forget to turn it to on. You know what I mean? (laughs) Yeah. You know, Furter's done that a time or two on our Ohio property. (laughs) Yeah, man. Yeah. You need to give Furter a break, man. Why, why, I feel like I, feel like, I, talk, <laughs> I feel like you talk shit on him when he's not here to defend himself. That's the best time to do it, Dan. <laughs> You're probably right. That's what I do with all my friends too. <laughs> um, yeah, me and Furter, we got work to do on our side though because we have to go pull all of our stands off the Ohio yeah. property. And because I've been gone, I just got back last night in Michigan. Um, so – Sometime here soon, we got to drive down to the Ohio place, pull all of our stands, get everything out of there. Um, And I actually leave this weekend again for Colorado and Nevada for a week. So I'm home for four days, and then I take off for Colorado um, doing some writing project stuff out there. Um, So it's just not much time to get a lot of stuff done. I've got all the... Stuff I still need to prep on my main Michigan farms. Got to go up to our northern place and do some work up there. It just seems like uh, the the year, the summer has gotten away from me. Yeah, yeah, man, it's out of control how fast life starts to go. Like, man, I just, I, you know, when the memories come up on Facebook, uh-huh. and I click on it and it takes me to the picture, and then I find myself in like this black hole of looking through old pictures, uh-huh. and I'm just like I'm looking at pictures of Ava when she's a baby. Oh, by the way, this is a this is a warning to the guy who doesn't like me talking about my kids. <laughs> so you can fast forward for the next couple seconds. So can you imagine you that know, guy's reaction when he saw last week's podcast? <laughs> oh, dude, I bet you. I bet. I, I hope this isn't true, but I'm crossing my fingers that it is. He it it spiraled him out of control to start using drugs and alcohol really oh, heavy again. So, so like that's that's the trigger. That's what triggered him to like fall off the wagon. Raising outdoor kids. <laughs> <laughs> but back back to Ava. Back to Ava. What were yeah. you what were you saying about her? Oh, just like, you know, how fast time's going, man. And then you look at you look at the goals you want to accomplish with your family and you look at the goals that you yourself want to accomplish and how you feel you're going to make that work. I mean, Mark, I turned 38 years old this year. Right. Whoa. Yeah. And uh, the knees aren't what they used to be. So if I ever want to go and start doing some of these crazy hunts, I got to do them and I got to do them now. Okay, so. So, yeah. So speaking of that. Um, how is the elk prep coming? You said you've been working out, adjusting the diet. We, we haven't really covered that in detail. Um, what's, what's, what's going on? I mean, as you know, it is hard to prep for an elevated hunt when you live in the flattest land 
of all the lands. You know what I mean? Yeah. So, I mean, I've do, been doing my weighted packs, changed my diet, and um, uh, doing a lot of workouts. So I'll do this workout where I'll row and then I'll go run on the treadmill. And, uh, I mean, really, that's really all you do. I mean, I, I've laid off the, the weights a lot and uh, try to do a little bit more cardio. And uh, I've lost 10 pounds probably in the last month or so that, nice. you know, uh, but, you know, I, I will think I'm in good shape and then I'll get up there. And, uh, but our plan is, you know, I'm going with my buddy Ryan Iberg. And so our plan is we're leaving on a Friday. We're going to get there on like a, on Saturday afternoon and we're not going to hunt Saturday. I think part of the problem I had in Idaho was there was zero acclimation time. We right. got out of the car and we went. Yeah. So we're going to be about 3000 foot higher than what we were in Idaho. And we're going to be, uh, I'm going to get there, chill that night, pound as much water as I can get acclimated, try to get a good night's sleep, get up Sunday morning and then start it. So, yeah. uh, that's see smart. if that if that helps. I've ha- I've had a couple people reach out to me and tell me that's what I needed to do. We'll give it a try, man. Yeah, it's funny. Literally, just three days ago, I was in Jackson at the sporting goods store that you spent your <laughs> <laughs> your entire life savings to get a tent in the in the emergency situation. <laughs> and I'll tell you, I'll tell you right now, I can I can still remember that conversation I had with my wife. She's like, <laughs> your tent cost. How much? <laughs> you don't understand, Sarah. Yeah, it was an emergency. <laughs> I had to do it because there was no way in hell Mark was going to let me sleep in his tent. Can you imagine if we both tried to fit in there, though, <laughs> with oh, all man. of our wet gear and everything? That would have taken that trip to a whole new level of punishment. Oh, yeah. Well, you had the Taj Mahal, though, for the rest of the trip. That was nice to get everything aired out in there. And yep. Are yep. you taking that for this one? Yep. Yep. <laughs> I just opened it up and slept in it for the first time last weekend with the kids since that trip. I had, I had, I mean, I, I cleaned it, put it away and then opened it up for the first time, worked like a charm. And, uh, so that was the fourth time I've ever slept in it (laughs) since I bought it. (laughs) Well, you're going to get your money's worth after this trip. Hopefully. I know, I know, but dude, I'm jacked. What, uh, so you're back in Michigan, huh? Yep. Yep. Got back last night home for four days and then gone for a week and then I'm back for three weeks and then back to Montana to start whitetail hunting. Right. So are you going back to that, some of that same public ground again? Yeah. I'm going to go back to uh, the spot I hunted last year. Um, you know, it, it didn't seem quite as well. I don't know. It was, it was pretty, it was pretty darn good last year. I just, I passed on like a bunch of decent bucks, but I was hoping to see like a, knocked me off my socks buck and I didn't see that. So then I was thinking, okay, maybe this place, you know, there's a lot of these, like, you know, a lot of bucks, a lot of deer, but maybe not what I was thinking there might be. But then I went back and shed hunted this spring, you know, and me and Furter found lots and lots of antlers and some good ones too. So now I know like there's, there's a lot of mature bucks. I, I saw a few last year that were like, okay, I think these are some mature bucks. Um, 
but it's a little, they're a little bit different body size from, I guess, the Midwestern deer. So I had a little bit of a hard time judging sometimes too. Yeah. Um, but now that we've kind of seen what's out there a little bit better, I feel pretty confident that if I put in my time and now that I know more about the area after shed hunting and, and walking basically everything around there, I, I definitely have a good idea of how to approach it this year. So, um, so I'm so excited about it. Are you hitting South Dakota too, or was that North Dakota? North Dakota. And, North Dakota. And that is going to be kind of, um, we're going to see how it goes. I'm That's going to be a patience hunt. See yeah. how much patience your wife has left. <laughs> <laughs> well, well, no, I think what I'm doing is I'm going to budget like 10 days to, um, my Montana whitetail hunt. Okay. And I'm going to hit Montana first. But if I happen to get lucky and tag out early, then I can just swing back and on the way home is uh north dakota is that a over-the-counter hunt yeah you can get it as a as i understand it unless it changed since the last time i looked which is last year but as i understand it you can get a whitetail only archery tag um i bought it a lot online last year over the counter and i understand that if you get it during the season maybe you have to go to like a specific town to pick it up in person or something but um but i can figure that out if if i get luck if i get lucky in montana i will uh i'll take that take that uh i don't even know what i'm trying to say i'll figure it out that's what i'm trying to say is Ferger coming with you you know i don't think he is i asked him if he wanted to come and he said he's going to look into it um but since we're our ohio property bailed he i think he's got a little bit more flexibility with timing since we're not going to do our big trip down there so so there's a chance he might come Um, i might try to weasel my way into that one to that north dakota hunt i might try to weasel my way in with Ferger. (laughs) Give him some like sob story and then maybe, maybe hitch a ride out there with him. It's a cool, it's a cool area. There's a lot of, there's a lot of stuff to explore out there. Um, it's fun. So I'm hoping, I'm hoping that works out. Yeah. But, uh, but yeah, I mean, I realized that other than that hunt, which I do have figured out, I feel pretty well prepared for that, but I got this Montana elk tag. And I'm not prepared for that in any way whatsoever. So this is the first time I'm hearing of that. So what's the deal with this Montana elk hunt? There is no deal at all. Like literally I applied for Montana elk. I applied for the combo tag. So you get an elk and a deer tag. And I kind of just assumed, okay, I'll, I'll figure something out. And then I just kind of got busy with life and planning all these other things. And now I have this elk tag and I'm going to budget a week, but I have, I have, I'm not, I'm going solo. Uh, I have, I have no, I don't have an area picked out yet. I have done no scouting. I have nothing. So literally in the next week, (laughs) in the next, and it's just, there's just too much going on. I just like, I haven't even planned my trip that I'm leaving in four days for Colorado. I haven't planned anything for other than getting a plane ticket and a rental car. And I have a friend who we're doing this thing and I have not picked which mountains we're climbing. I haven't picked where we're in a camp nothing so like i'm living on like a week-to-week basis right now oh boy oh boy mark i can't wait to see the the facebook post have you seen this hiker (laughs) (laughs) you know like mark kenyon's been missing for 10 days what uh so this elk hunt in montana is that gonna be in grizzly bear country well if i go solo which is how it's looking right now um i'm gonna try to not go in grizzly country just because uh you know Hunting elk, hunting anything in grizzly country is a little sketchy, let alone doing it completely by yourself. So I think, and that'd be my first solo elk hunt too. So I think, I think a solo hunt will be really cool. I like the idea getting back there on my own, kind of just, you know, 
It's a different situation when you're 100%. Testing yourself, yeah, dude. exactly. Testing yourself. You're 100% dependent on yourself. And I've done I've, I've elk hunted enough. I feel comfortable. I've done a lot of backpacking, a ton of hiking. I've, I'm really comfortable in the wilderness. But it's always been with someone. So I kind of like the idea of doing something that's out of my comfort zone, you know, just just to see how it goes. And like you said, to push myself. So I kind of I kind of intrigued by doing it that way. Um, fortunately, I know enough people in the southwestern general Montana area that uh, if I do get something down, I could probably call someone to help me pack it out, which is right. which is uh, what I'd be crossing my fingers for. But um, but yeah, I need to try to look into some of these different mountain ranges that that aren't yet um, covered with grizz, and I'm planning on doing some some scouting on the maps over the next week or two, and just kind of go in with low expectations just to try to find some elk. It'll be kind of fun, I guess, because the other thing about where I elk hunted in the past, where you came with me, like that was a spot I learned about from a friend and like a friend took me out there and then I started going myself afterwards, but I never found it myself. So there's, there's a kind of a cool challenge of discovering a new place all on my own, try to figure out where the elk are there all on my own um, and see if I've, you know, figured any of this elk stuff out or if I'm, as much of a dummy as I probably sound. <laughs> well, so. I tell you what, that's my goal. One of my goals in the upcoming years is to not only plan hunting trips, but plan scouting trips as well to where I can go out in mid to late August to the, you know, basically go look for a game to hunt, right? It's like one of my, one of my, uh, dream hunts is a high country mule deer hunt. And you don't just, from what I understand, you don't just go high country mule deer hunting, right? It, it's, it's, there's so much prep work that's involved to just locate something. Yeah. Uh, and there's a lot of scouting. I mean, just, just really for any out of state hunt, but I want to do, I want to be able to go there, do some camping, uh, do some hiking, go basically scout for these animals where there's where they're going to be hopefully in, you know, late August, early September and, uh, you know, put a plan together. So we'll see, we'll see how that works. That's a smart way to do it. Yeah. Don't yeah. show up though. Don't show up on the trip uh, saying, all right, I'm going to figure it out as we go. <laughs> yeah. Right. Right. That doesn't happen very often. Yeah. I'll tell you how it goes. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah. But, uh, I, I guess it's for good reason. I've got, I've got so many cool trips that I am a little behind, but I can't complain about that. So we'll yeah. see. We'll see. But, I'll just, uh, uh Anytime you feel stressed, just text me. I'll send you a picture of my uh, my cubicle. When are you getting out of that thing, dude? Dude, I don't know. Like, you know, you know how it is. You just keep grinding until it happens. And uh, I don't know. I don't know. I, you know, it's like I can't. I, I'm in a position right now where I really can't even think about it. Three kids, right? Uh, yeah, but you are the QDMA communicator of the year. I cannot wait. <laughs> You know what? That's I'm I'm pretty proud of that, right? However, I can't I can't flex on that. I can't go up to to like a uh, sponsor and be like, "Give me 50k. I'm the QDMA signpost communicator of the year." <laughs> like that don't work. <laughs> no, that's exactly how it worked for me, man. That's how I quit my job. I, I just said exactly. <laughs> I just walked up and did that exact spiel you did. <laughs> yes or no? Take a risk on me. Yes or no? Yeah, but you had zero kids at that time. Oh, yeah. And I definitely did not do what you just said. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So, yeah, I totally understand. There's a lot of uh, – it's not an easy leap to take, but you're – man, you're making good progress. It's going to happen soon. 
We'll see. Yeah. Or I'm waiting for that executive position to open up within Wired to Hunt, and then I'll t- I'll uh, I'll just kind of sidestep right into that. There you go. <laughs> We're at the you're higher. You're high earning executives, right? I I wish we were. I wish I had that kind of money. <laughs> I'm probably I'm probably in line behind Ferder though. Ferder has <sighs> he does have a few years of uh, of experience with me on you, but um, but you do grow a better beard. Yeah, and uh, you snuggle better in the tent. So, yeah. last Good. question. Last question. Yeah, how's your goat doing? Oh, the goats in prime form, man. That mountain air really helps my facial hair grow. Yeah. Um, so I gotta believe that by the time September rolls around, I'll have like a quarter inch of stubble. Maybe it should be pretty impressive. Are you trimming it or are you letting it got, kind of go backwards <laughs> nasty? I have to, it's so embarrassing to talk about my facial hair like this. It's so bad that you're sarcastically bringing it up on the podcast. <laughs> <laughs> it's the only thing I have on you. Please just let me have this one win. Yeah, you, you, you've got it. <laughs> yeah, I have to trim it up. The wife doesn't like it when it gets too long and stringy. So yeah, I get to. If you don't have a goat, you look 12. Yeah. And when I do have a goat, I look 16 maybe. So <laughs> it's funny though. We just, I got my new passport the other day or today actually and they sent back the old passport with it so i compare the picture of me now versus the picture of me when i was 15 or whatever it was when i got my first passport and that was pretty comical to see that braces long hair like big bowl (laughs) cut kind of thing um the facial hair wasn't too different but (laughs) can't have it all right can't have it all can't have it all well we got a lot of exciting stuff coming up this year elk hunts and all that good stuff but uh i guess we should stop we should break here get to our main event with tom ware who is uh just a white tail legend the guy just uh he gets it done so uh let's take a break here and then we'll get to tom before we do that though i do want to thank our partners at onyx and as we were just discussing I am in the midst of some last-minute elk hunt planning, and a big part of that planning and digital scouting is going to be done with my Onyx Hunt app on my phone, which provides me with aerial and topographical maps, plus the public land designations and borders that are going to be important for me to know when deciding where to hunt, where I can access these places, and all that kind of stuff. And then, of course, once I'm actually out there hunting, I can use the app on my phone too as a GPS, which is going to show me where I'm at, where I've been, and all the other information I just mentioned, which can be downloaded and used even if I don't have cell phone service. So it's going to be a very handy tool for me in the coming weeks. And if you've got anything like that coming up yourself, you might want to check out Onyx as well. So you can pick up their app on your favorite mobile phone app store, or you can learn more at onyxmaps.com. All right, with me now on the line is Tom Ware. Thanks for joining me, Tom. Hey, thanks for asking, Mark. Yeah, I... uh you know, we, we got to chat a couple years ago on the 100% Wild podcast with Matt. Um, mm-hmm. I can't believe it's been that long, but I but I enjoyed those chats, and I've always enjoyed watching you from afar via you know everything you're doing with Drury Outdoors. So, man, I'm just glad we can do this. Absolutely, I, I look forward to it. I uh, one thing is I I love hunting uh, with Drury Outdoors, and and I love uh, kind of teaching others how to how to hunt better and 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 i've learned from some of the best and just been blessed with uh being surrounded by people in the industry that know what they're doing and i love to pass it on and help other people uh 
you know, uh, harvest, harvest big, mature white tails and make memories. That's what it's all. That's what life should be all about. You know? Yeah. Yeah. I agree. So, so how did that start for you? How did, I mean, how did you get to this point? Um, because I think a lot of people see you and, and the type of success you're having from a hunting standpoint. And there's like, wow, this guy has got it all figured out, but I got to believe that that didn't just start from the get go. Right. Oh, no, absolutely not. No, I actually, I grew up, um, my father was a, a big duck hunter and goose hunter, and uh, he he paid no attention to whitetails whatsoever. And I was uh, I was duck hunting with him one time, and we were walking back from the duck blind uh, back to the cabin, and uh, I found a shed antler. And I was asking him, you know, I was just a kid, you know, and I was just like, Dad, this is cool, you know. Like, one of those deer broke his antlers off, and he's like, no, and he told me, He's like, no, they actually shed them, and they grow. You know, it's a memory, and it grows every year, and it, sometimes they get bigger. And he and I was just intrigued with that. I was like, what? And he started telling me about uh, the velvet, you know, and all that. And as a kid, you know, it's just so interesting to me. It, it was to me, anyway. And so I, uh, every time we'd be duck hunting, every now and then you'd see deer, you know. We, we hunted next to the Illinois River, and, and uh Pike County, Illinois. And so anyway, uh, you'd see some deer up there and I'd always be instead of looking for ducks and ducks would be coming in and they shoot and I'm looking at these deer, you know? And <laughs> yeah. So anyway, it kind of grew into a, uh, where I'd always ask him in the evenings if we could go out and look for deer. And, you know, he was probably like, Oh, this kid is interested in the wrong things, uh-huh. you know, but it, uh, it was great. And the, eventually when I was in college, he bought into a farm and they, there was four guys and they called it four guys farm. And I was the fifth tag along. I was the fifth wheel, I guess. And uh, we just shotgun hunted. We we knew nothing about deer hunting whatsoever. We'd always we, you know, opening day of deer season, we'd we'd rush out there and pay no attention to the wind or anything at all. We'd just get on like four corners of the farm, you know, and four and and I'd be in the middle or something like that. You know, everybody had their little place, and uh, we weren't very successful whatsoever. But we we had we had fun, you know how it all started that's awesome so so then who who helped you or how did you then take that next step because you went from just going out there and having a good time to all of a sudden getting to a point where you're you know consistently having success targeting and killing mature bucks did you have like a a mentor or or some influences that got you there or was it just yeah well i i i started getting into uh uh my cousin it was kind of finger shooting a bow one day at, at the duck club, and I started, I was like, you know, I, Dad, I think I want one of these bow and arrows, you know, so he went and bought me a golden eagle, and I, I was, I finger shot, and I, I remember, uh, again, going back to duck hunting, I, I was duck hunting, coming back, I was, I, actually, I was, I didn't start till late, I was already married, I was with my father-in-law and brother-in-law, and we were duck hunting, and we came around the edge of this tip of this timber, and there was this, uh, on the way back to the cabin again, and there was this big scrape, and next to this cornfield, and it's kind of open country, not very much timber, but we saw this big scrape, and I was like, man, I'm going to put a stand right here. I've been, I've been uh, shooting with this bow, and you know, I got, I bought a stand, had an old chain on, you know, so I, I drove down on a four wheeler, and didn't get there till like three o'clock, trying to put up this stand again. Really knew nothing about it, you know. Put the old screwing steps in, and. Uh, and got up there, and I was like, you know, it's it's kind of getting that time where deer start moving. By the time I got it up, it took me a couple hours, and uh, climbed up in there. And the four wheelers literally 
10 yards behind me, just right by the tree, you know. And I, I had my bow, and I was like, ah, up, you know, I, I climbed up with that and, and, and uh, again, knew, knew nothing. And uh, the wind happened to be in the right way, and, and uh, sure enough, here comes this buck. It comes right into that scrape and starts pawing, and I lit, my heart <laughs> was just pounding. I, oh. I still remember that, and and I drew back, and I couldn't even find the peep sight. I, I was uh, I was so just jacked up, you know, yeah. and and I, I remember he was so close. I was like, I, I got to be, you know, I got to be on him, and I and I shot, and I, I knew it hit in the body, and. Uh, he ran all the way up and like for a couple hundred yards and then went over the levee. And, and I remember calling my dad, I had a bag phone. This is how long ago it was. So <laughs> I had a bag phone in the car and That's I, awesome. uh, yeah. And I called him and I was like, dad, dad, I shot this monster buck, you know? And he, he ended up scoring. We found him the next day after a long, I could tell you a long story, but he, we don't have enough time. And, uh, and I, we found him, and, and from that day on, man, I was a bow hunter, and I didn't even want to duck hunt anymore. I just, I was all about deer hunting, you know. So, man. And so then the next step was we had a, a farmer next to this four guys farm I told you about previously that had about a thousand acres, and he he was a deer hunter, and he didn't lease it out. It was kind of before is when outfitters just started kind of coming around in Pike County, Illinois, and uh, he would always let us kind of since there was uh the four guys farm was 115 acres so it was kind of tight with all the agriculture and stuff uh, it was kind of tight for five guys and he would usually in day two day three he would say hey if you guys want to go over in this timber or whatever i'll let you go over there and so uh we we'd do that and i i we shotgunned his property for a couple years and then uh then I asked him that first year when after i shot that deer with a bow i i asked him if i could go bow hunting and he said sure and the next year after that, he called me up. He said, hey, I'm going to lease it out. And this was in 99, 1999. He, leased, he said, I'm going to lease it out um, to uh, the, one of these outfitters. And I asked him, I said, what's an outfitter? <laughs> I didn't even know what they were. Uh-huh. And he's like, oh, they, they, uh, you know, they bring in these non-resident hunters, and they kind of, it's kind of a vacation for them. They come hunt for like a week, and, and they, you know, they charge them, and, and uh they, you know, sometimes they have a cabin, sometimes they get hotels, and so I started looking them up, and I was like, man, this would be great, you know, and uh, this would be, I'd like to be an outfitter, you know. <laughs> <laughs> so so I I actually said, hey, would you, uh, I asked this landowner, uh, would you, would you split the money with me if I was an outfitter first year, and, and lease it out to me instead of with these other guys, and he's like, you know what, I, I, I'll do that. Wow. And so that's kind of how it started. I, I didn't even know, um, really, you know, I, I had only shot that one deer and, uh, uh, <laughs> I was just such a green amateur. I, I had no clue how to really do anything. And, um, so, um, uh, the next step is I, I was an outfit the first year, had a friend named Joe Gizdick, which, uh, he's, he works for Whitetail Properties. Yeah. He was an outfitter. If you know, Joe, he, he, yep. uh, I had an ad in the paper, um, for, uh, try trying like in St. Louis paper, trying to get customers and stuff. And he saw that and he called me, he says, do you need any help? And I said, well, I can't afford any employees, you know? And he's like, I tell you what, I'll trade you out. Um, 
work for you know putting up stands and everything for for hunting rights and i said you got a deal and so joe came over and he really helped me out he knew he'd been working for another outfitter in central illinois for a few years and um so he knew a lot about just the outfitting industry he he really helped me kind of get going and uh I had been working for my family's convenience store chain, and so I was kind of a. I, I grew up in the business world, so I knew a lot about business. And Joe wanted to start his own outfitting uh, business, so I kind of helped him on the business side, and he helped me. Uh, <coughs> excuse me, I got a frog in my throat. He helped me on the uh, just how to place stands, and you know, he helped me a lot on just. Uh, wind you know wind direction and just get just getting to know the basics and uh so that's kind of how i started out so that's wow. kind of the, the very beginning that's awesome so yeah you started the outfitting business and how long did you end up running the outfitting there for well i i started in 99 and uh actually in about 2000 i got one more story for you the the mm-hmm. next step was uh Joe, Joe worked with me, but I kind of wanted to be able to go to. You can't, you can't, you know, major in college in in whitetails. I mean, you can. <laughs> the only thing I can think of is there's like a guiding school out in Colorado or something like that. But I was like, I want to be able to excel quickly and learn as much as I can. I've always been like that. I just whatever I get into, I want to learn as much as I can, as much as I can, as fast as I can. So. I was talking to this car salesman, and he said, uh, hey, you ought to hire that Stan Potts. And I was like, yeah, I've heard of Stan. I, I didn't know much about him, but, you know, the TV shows were kind of just getting started at that time. And so I called Stan, and I I remember I, I offered Stan, which in the, this was a lot of money, and I, this is about all the money I had. I had $3,000, and I offered Stan. I met him at Steak and Shake. And uh, he was really kind of, in the beginning, he was like, you know, really nervous, like, who is this kid? What's he want? Yeah. So I just I just sat it down. I just said, Stan, told him exactly. I said, I've been a duck hunter. I know nothing about deer hunter. I've, I, you know, I started my first year outfitting and we got, I think, you know, had a few customers in, but really lost, lost a lot of money that first year, not knowing what I was doing. And and I said, I, I need some, I, I would like you to basically, it was around February, and I said, if you could just walk the woods with me this time of year, we'll look for shed antlers, stuff like that. And if you can just think out loud and just tell me what you're thinking, why you would hunt this stand or put a stand here, why would you pick this tree, how would you access it, you know, and, and, and stuff like that. You know, when you look at it, we didn't have as many deer cameras at that time. You know, so we look at deer tracks and say, yeah, it looks like a three-year-old or that looks like a mature deer, you know, and stuff like that. It was totally different or a scrape line or a rub line, stuff like that. And so that's what he did. He actually, um, I hired him to take me out 10 full days for that money and spend a full day with me and just think out loud. And, and, uh, Stan had killed, he was one of the few that had killed some giant deer at the time. I think he, he had, uh. Illinois second in the state as far as typical, a 201, I think, something like that. So he killed some giant deer around Clinton, Illinois, and uh, I hired him, and he kind of took me under his wing and uh, taught me, just taught me a ton about whitetail hunting. And uh, then through the outfitting industry, uh, I had people in like Bill Winkie, uh, Greg Miller. Um, I ended up buying a farm uh, in Iowa later from Don Kiske. And, 
you know, met a lot of guys in the industry and they all hunted differently. They all had different thoughts of how to hunt. And I just kind of soaked all that knowledge in and, and, you know, put it in my file cabinet in my brain and tried to learn from everybody. Wow. That's a heck of a a set of influences there. Yeah, it was, I was just surrounded myself with the right people and, and was very lucky to be able to meet them, meet them and, and they were willing to share their knowledge and it it was it was awesome do you do you remember anything on those on those days with Stan was there any like light switch moment for you with him that first you know mentor that walked you around for 10 days was there anything that still stands out today that you remember oh when Stan brought this up or this thing I learned from Stan changed everything for me is there anything like that that stands out still um well, I, I know, you know, if, if, if uh, I would compare it like how Stan hunted and killed big deer compared to others, one thing Stan did is, is uh, different than like Bill Winkie, completely different. Bill would pay all attention to how he accessed. He would go up like a, a lot of times he would go up a deep ravine to the tip of it where the bucks would go around on the agricultural side of it they go around the deep ditch you know just they kind of walk timber just like people do they Mm -hmm. go the easiest route well that's kind of how bill hunted he would he would pay a big attention to access for stan a lot of times stan was getting invited to go to an outfitting location and he might be hunting there you know the sixth through the ninth so he knew that during the peak of the rut um he's just got to get to the main travel corridor where the most does are and maybe that part of the timber where they're going to be traveling all day. And he didn't really, he just said, I remember asking him, well, how am I going to get to this low, this tree right here, Stan? And he was just like, don't worry about it. During those times, just get here. I don't care if you have to trample all through here. You just get your butt in this tree and sit here all day, you know, and you'll have a good chance of killing a big buck, you know, and, and, uh, so he just, it was, uh, he, he was, you know, he would find the tree. I remember he, at the end he would quiz. It was kind of fun because he would say, okay, in this timber right here, I've got a tree picked out. Now you pick out the tree you would, you would pick out <laughs> and then tell me why you would pick it out. So I was, it was kind of like a little test. Let's see, kid, here, let's see if you're going to yeah. pass this test or not. And and near the end there, about 80% of the time, I was picking out the same tree, you know. And it, was, it wasn't just like, you know, in 10-yard radius. It was like, you know, in this 100-yard or 200-yard area, which tree would you pick out and why, and how would the wind currents flow, and... You know, it was it was uh, it was it was a it was a great learning experience for me. But that that's really the main thing I remember about Stan is, and and uh, all the others is I usually remembered how they hunted compared to everybody else. Yeah. Was there anyone else of that group that stood out as being really different? You mentioned how Bill used really focused on access. Stan was all about getting the best stuff right away. Anything with like Don Kiskey or any of those other guys that stands out that was interesting or unique? Yeah, Don was, uh, uh, I went to, uh, oh, I, I was getting older and working for the family business and, and had a little bit more money. And then uh, uh, when I met Don was when I actually, Stan recommended, uh, I said, I'd seen the peak in Pike County and the land values go from like $900 an acre to, um gosh, you know, almost $5,000 an acre. Now they've dropped back off. But uh, 
And I said, where's the next ripple effect going to happen? And, you know, we were talking. I said, I think southern Iowa up there. And, and he says, I agree. And I was like, I wish I knew a farm for sale up there. I'd go look at one. He says, well, it was turkey season. He goes, well, Don, Don Kandikiski got a, got a farm for sale. So I was like, well, when do you want to go up there with me? And <laughs> it, it, we couldn't schedule it. Other than, he goes, the only day I got available is tomorrow. So I was like, man, let's go. So we went up there and. <laughs> I fell in love with this piece of ground. But Don, you know, that's kind of when I really first started seeing. I had messed around with food plots as an outfitter, but Don Don did a great job of uh, really kind of, you know, putting a lot of food plots out and larger food plots. And, you know, that was kind of the beginning of the food plot era. And uh, I would say that's kind of what I learned from Don. You know, he just had a lot of big bucks and in Iowa and not near as much pressure. And mm-hmm. it was a little bit easier than in Pike County trying to compete against 50 different outfitters in the state. And, right. you know, you had non-residents that were, uh, coming in from Pennsylvania and New York that, uh, you know, if they saw a 120, that there was a big, might've been the biggest deer they've ever shot in their life. And, yeah. and so, uh, we, we tried to man it. I was the first outfitter in Pike County to go to 140 inches. And I got a lot of grief from that. You know, a lot of the non-residents, you know, they wanted to shoot. And I remember putting a $500 fine on it and boy, and trying to get, you know, through that process of, of, of saying, Hey, I wanted to have, you know, I wanted to basically go from a two-year-old to a three-year-old or a three-year-old to a four-year-old and make that progression. And it was tough. It was tough to be the first to do that, but, um, we, you know, we got it done and, um, you know, and I eventually sold the outfitting business in 2010, I think it was. So I was, I was an outfitter for about 11 years, but I learned a lot, learned a lot and, and not to overpressure a stand and, you know, only put that a few customers in a stand. We had, we had 300 sets and, uh, um, and, and, some some stands didn't even get hunted, you know. So I was all about just just uh, not putting very many customers in a, in the same stand day after day, you know. But you had to have a lot of land to do that. So yeah, I've always thought that being an outfitter has got to be one of the most one of the best ways to get like a PhD on deer because it's not like you're just hunting yourself. You're hunting for yep. a dozen people or dozens of people or whatever, thinking through how to place all these different people and then getting reports back from each one of them. So it's it's like you can test something and then get the feedback on it right away. So yeah, absolutely. I mean, that, you got that a lot must of experience. be incredible. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, it was fun because I'd have a, I had a, I had fully guided camp and then I, I did offer a semi-guided camp. But the fully guy, and I'd have dinner with the guys every night, and uh, we'd sit around the table, and we'd just sit there and talk about, hey, you know, they saw this big buck. How did he, how did he approach? Where did he come from? And you'd mentally note that. And then, uh, you know, did, did he bust you in the stand, or uh, did he catch your wind? Did he, um, you know, we didn't have all the, of course, we didn't have any box blinds or anything like that back then. Um, if they did, they were kind of homemade homemade platforms that we'd put in a fork of a tree or something like that, you know, and I tried to stay away from those as an outfitter just for safety. But, uh, uh, it, it, yeah, you definitely learn, um, on a much quicker pace in which that's what I loved. I loved learning. So, yeah. Is there, is there anything from that time period that, that you learned during that kind of like overload of information that you still come back to now today, just hunting on your own? Were there any big takeaways from that period? 
Um, I'd say one big takeaway is, you know, when you get the guys out east, there's, you know, a high density of Pennsylvania, New York hunters that wanted to come to Midwest, and they're used to hunting all timber. And everybody wanted to go in the biggest block of timber you had, and it seemed like that's that's not where we killed the big bucks, you know. I mean, sometimes we did, but it seemed like uh, I always learned that those CRP fields and the edges of this or, a, you know, a little watering hole and maybe a little bitty uh, on the edge of a timber and CRP or stuff like that is where uh seemed and now now it's all about food i mean that's that's what i do now we can probably get into that later but uh you know i i'm a big advocate of the food 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 you know plant the food yeah so so yeah let's let's talk about what the situation is now so you went from running this outfitting business to now you're doing your own thing i know you've mm-hmm. got some buddies to hunt with you and family and stuff like that but um but is it right you hunt in iowa illinois and missouri is that correct Yep, yep. I got farms in all three states. Yeah. So how do you manage? Like, how do you, how do you manage the time between those spots? Because I've got a couple of spots that I hunt a lot, and I can do some property management and things, and I can do some hunting on both of those. But it's always a challenge of mine to figure out how to split the limited time I have between all these different places when it comes to all the off-season work, and then actually during the hunting season. Like, how do you manage your time between those farms? Both what you know, whether it is like pre-season work and management, or actually out there during the season well as far as hunting them uh and where to hunt uh i usually let the deer tell me where to hunt you know if um i let the you know the reconics cameras i put out i let them kind of you know uh by checking them um and and now uh, i'm actually buying some quite a few cell cameras so i'll be able to actually look at my phone and go okay what state do i need to be in tomorrow (laughs) it's the technology is crazy yeah and i know some people hate the technology with deer hunting and they think that hunting you know it should all be about not having technology but uh it's it's still it's still nature when you're sitting out there in a tree stand or a box blind to me uh you know i try to put the phone away and uh and, and just enjoy, you know, God's work. But, uh, but as far as getting there and where to hunt, I, I do use the technology, but I, I let that kind of guide me where the biggest buck or the most mature buck might be. And, and, uh, during daylight and, and then I'll try to hunt there. And maybe if there, if there's a reconics camera or a food plot, um, that, that is showing or a scrape or something that's showing, Hey, this, there's a mature buck visiting often this, this location during daylight, he's probably the easiest to kill right now then I usually will kind of go, you know, let that guide me. What about when it comes to the work you're doing? I mean, how much, I feel, I feel like a lot of people, there's, there's sort of this kind of growing, um, I don't know if it's resentment or something within the hunting world where there's people that, that do have properties and they manage them and they, they have a great time and they're killing great bucks. And there's some people that don't have those same resources or opportunities. And, and sometimes they look at stuff that's going on TV and they complain, oh, well, that guy only kills big deer because he's got this big farm or he's got so much money or et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Right, um, right. But I think that, you know, I think there's value in, in looking at all sorts of different types of situations. So I think that if you hunt public land, it's important to learn from guys that hunt public land too. But at the same time, you can learn things or take things away, even from people that hunt in a different situation. But mm-hmm. I have found that 
a lot of people assume that folks with their own properties just have it made in the shade. Like just because you own property, all of a sudden that means big deer are going to be there. Or just because you have a farm in Iowa or Illinois or whatever, it's just a piece of cake. But after talking to people that are in those situations, you inevitably find out that there's actually an unbelievable amount of work that goes into that. Um, oh yeah. Can you speak to there's that? There's a lot of pre- there's a lot of preparation and. You know, I would say the biggest thing, I I am blessed with property. You know, I'm able to, you know, I've worked hard and I, you know, you, you say all that, but uh, I I do have different properties. And uh, the, the biggest thing I can say about, you know, buying farms and um, it is you, the, the biggest thing to get big deer, you can have big farms, but that doesn't mean you're going to have big deer. You have to pass, you have to pass the big deer. I mean, People won't believe me, I mean, but I do have video to back it up. I mean, I've passed some just gigantuan deer, and then I've regretted it later. I, I remember passing a, a big buck just, just a few years ago in Iowa, and he was a five-year-old, and my goal was to shoot a 200-inch deer. Still haven't shot one. Actually, I shot one, but I didn't kill it. I, I didn't recover it, and he lived and grew another rack the next year. But uh, I, uh, I, I remember... The the buck I was referring to earlier was uh, I passed a we found his sheds and it was 192 inches. Oh wow! And he came right into a decoy and it was just like a chip shot. But we we knew by we had tons of reconics pictures of him and we we're like you know he's not a 200 inch deer he's on the best part of my property where he's least likely he was kind of a homeboy and I was like you know he doesn't wander too much. So I don't think, and even if he does, there, he wandered onto a lease that I had next to my property, and it was in Iowa. And I was like, you know, I just don't think. And the and the neighbor to the north uh, was a friend of mine, and and we had talked, and he's like, I'm not shooting him either. In fact, his wife had had passed the same deer, and uh, his nickname was Sly. And uh, uh, long story short, uh, the next year he went from a 192. He shed his antlers at the end of November. Jeez. So he was sick. We, Mark Mark Drury thinks that um, we talked a lot about it. He says, I probably had a tad bit of EHD, and he just fought through it and lived. But he dropped his uh, he dropped his antlers early, and then the next year he grew a, a set of, like, <clears throat> 160. Hmm. And so we, we passed him again the next year, thinking, well, he'll recover. He'll come back again the next year. Well, we actually found him dead at the end of that year. And... Uh, so it was, you know, I regret it. I was like, dang, I wish I would have shot him, you know. But <laughs> it's, you know, you, you'll you'll never you never shoot 200 inch if if you shoot not 190s, you know. So I, that was my goal, and I still haven't got there. But one of these days, I'm hoping to. Yeah, and I think it's it's it probably it's it's all relative to where you're at and what's around there, right? So in your situation, absolutely, you have it could be a, a 140, it could be in yeah, in, in you pass the 130s, absolutely. Right. Exactly. I'm, I'm just blessed to to be in the Midwest where you know they can uh, grow just enormous racks. Yeah, that's so. a that's a unique situation, but uh, certainly something that. It is is awesome, and it's got to be a lot of fun to be in that kind of area where you can see deer like that and and follow deer like that year to year. Um, what do you? I imagine would you would you agree that a lot of your success probably is? Um, would you pin a lot of your success on the property work you're doing, the ways that you are 
improving the property, thinking through the property, strategically planning things? Is that a big part of what you're doing that's leading to this success, would you say? Yeah, I think it's everything. I think it's uh, uh, when you, you know, it, it could be anything from when I buy a piece of property. A lot of times, uh, many of the pieces of property I've bought have been like maybe old pasture that used to have a lot of cattle running on it. And then, you know, you can, one year will make a huge difference on a property like that where all that, you know, if the cows aren't on there anymore, then that's all growing up in a nice bedding area. The deer are going to bed there a little bit more often now that the cattle aren't there and they're getting bumped up all the time. So, um, and there's, you know, a lot of fresh new growth are going to come in and bed there. And then you might add some CRP, you might add some switchgrass, um, just a lot of uh, brush grows up. You might add agriculture so they have food, uh, bedding. They got uh, a lot of bedding like, you know, switchgrass and just secure bedding where they feel secure, feel comfortable. It's just uh, a lot different than the pasture uh, and the uh, maybe the timber that's ate down from the cows, you know, like it used to be. They It'll just change it, and all of a sudden you'll have more whitetails living on your farm. And, uh, and then, you know, they might have not managed that property in the past, so then you have to go through years of, of literally passing, you know, two, three, and actually literally passing four years. I, I don't believe a deer is at its potential until it's five. And and that's just me. And everyone's got you know everyone's got their different opinions. Uh, I I try to let deer reach five years old, and I just think they I've seen them so many times, especially between three and four, but even between four and five, they'll just grow another. Uh, you know, I have a deer this year on one of my farms. I don't want to say where, but uh, <laughs> he was about one one sixty, and uh, last year as a four year old. And uh, this year, I just got pictures of them just like three days ago, and we pulled them off off the Reconics, and I was like, "Oh my gosh!" And he just grew. And we, I sent him to Mark Drury, and I was like, "How big do you think this deer is?" And and I said, uh, I I didn't tell him what I thought it was, and he came back. He said, "188 to 190 is his guess." And and uh, I was, he said, "How big do you think it is?" And I said, "I was hoping he would make 190." Yeah. <laughs> and he says, "I, th- I think he probably will." He goes, "I think I'm being a little conservative." And uh, so anyway, you know, that's if wow. if I would have shot him last year, he'd have been a trophy deer, 160. Everyone's super happy with those, and uh, uh, even in the Midwest, and I think a 160 is everyone can say is a, a, a trophy deer. You know, something to be very very proud of, and. But you know, if if I would have shot him last year, he wouldn't he wouldn't have grown extra thirty inches. So, uh, you know that that's what I really specialize in. I would say is is just the the willingness. I, I'm I'm lucky though. I I I get to hunt more than the average person, uh, and so you know I'm out there hunting a lot. I, I if if I if I only got to hunt on the weekends, uh, or you know one day a week or one day a month. Um, then you know I'm I'm going to shoot that deer and 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 the, that's the difference. Since uh, I, I I'm just very lucky. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, to your point, there is something we said about having that time and uh, being able to be a little more choosy because of those opportunities. But um, absolutely. Well, you mentioned like when you're picking up a new farm and you look for sometimes spots with pastures and kind of almost a blank canvas. When you've gone into that 
purchasing decision because it sounds like you, you've bought a couple handful of farms over the years. Are there any other mm-hmm. things that you're looking for that have been like a good thing to have on a property when you start? Like I, I always want to look for X or it's great to get a property with Y on it because it sets you up, you know, better. Mm-hmm. Anything like that that stands out that you look for? Absolutely. Yeah. I, a lot of times when I'll look at the first thing I look at when I'm looking at a farm is the aerial photo. You know, usually when you're searching for farms for sale, that's how the realtors, they put them on their website or whatever. So you're, you have access to that aerial photo. And uh, then I'll try to zoom out from that aerial photo, and I'll look at what timber is around it. Is there connecting timbers that maybe might carry a big deer that it might be able to carry more big deer uh, because they're, during the rut they're going to travel on to you? Or is your farm the only area with timber? Um, or maybe your farm doesn't have much timber. The, the neighbor farm has timber, but you can draw them in there by planting food. So I look at things like that, and then I look at the access of how uh, – like let's say um, I buy a 80 acre um, farm that's in the shape of a rectangle or something. Um, usually I'll try to I'll try to put my food plots. I'm I'm big on food, like I mentioned earlier. I'll try to put my food plots usually on the exterior of the farm, no matter how big it is, um, and so that I can access that farm. Uh, hopefully I have access from each direction. That would be ideal, but that's very rarely the case. But uh, when I'm when buying a farm, I try to have at least two spots. You know, let's say the north and the south, or the east and the west, or something like that. And then I'll put those food plots so that basically when you're going into that food plot um, and putting up a box blind or a tree stand, you want the wind in your face blowing away from where the deer are bedded. And, you know, that's, it, it sounds common sense, but, you know, back in the day when I was hunting a four guys farm with my dad, I mean, we net that, that was, uh, never even considered. And I, I still talk to people today, like, uh, my buddy, I hunt with, uh, Clem, we call him, his name is Mike Clements and his dad, you know, he says they still all hunt the way the four guys farm guys did, you know, I mean, they, they're just shotgun hunters and they wonder why they don't kill anything. And well, a deer lives by his nose and, uh, you know, they, they know those guys are there. And, and so we just pay, try to pay attention to the, the really the common sense things. And Hey, if you can get into your lo- to your location, whether a tree stand, a ground blind, a box blind, something like that, and hunt food where, you know, those deer are going to come to that restaurant, so to speak. Um, and you can be there waiting for them without them knowing beforehand, and your odds are going to significantly increase. And it's just, I just try to use the, you know, it's not uh, rocket science or anything. It's just, you know, I, I try to plant a lot of food and, and, and bring them to me. Yeah. What what yeah. other things are you thinking about when you're planning a food plot, planning or planting, I guess? I mean, you you talked about the importance of having these plots located on the exterior yep. so you've got easy access. But is there anything else that you're thinking through? Like, Do you try to have them tight to bedding areas or far from bedding areas or do you – anything tight, else like that? Yeah, absolutely. I was just going to say that before you said it, tight to bedding areas because it seems like they will – if you want those deer – I mean, you can make them uh, – not so tight, and I'm not saying you won't see deer there, but it seems like you see the doe. You know, anybody that's a hunter, they they see the does come out first, and then those mature bucks. You know, all of a sudden, if you do see them, they'll be in that. They'll step out in that back corner just 15 minutes before dark or whatever. But if if you have some of these um, these food plots that are they're tucked in tight to bedding, um, 
it seems like, you know, all of a sudden they're showing up an hour, an hour and a half before dark. And you're like, man, I can't believe this deer's on the field during this daylight. Well, it's just, you know, he's getting up, stretching his legs, and he's he's not, he's be, he's not bedded very far from there. And he feels comfortable. He's been there, and there's been no other intrusion. You're not out there throwing a football in the backyard and, and letting him, you know, it's, uh, I mean, it's it's where he's he goes every day and feels comfortable. Maybe there's uh, you have water close. Uh, sometimes you can plant them right next to water where they're gonna want to get a drink and and eat. So things like that you try to think about uh, might be tougher to get to those locations. Uh, maybe they, you know, maybe your block of timber is kind of in the middle and you have to plant in the middle of your property because that's the only thick bedding area then then do it i would i would say do it i have a farm like that in missouri where my best food plot my most successful area is is right in the middle of my farm i have to so that's kind of you know against the grain or or against what i normally do but in that on that farm i i have to do what it takes i have to get in there next to the biggest chunk of timber and bedding area that i can to be able to see uh, those mature bucks during daylight so how, how do you do that then without screwing things up from the access standpoint? Um, what kind of scenario or what have you done to allow yourself to be able to get in the middle without uh, screwing the pooch? Well, you, a lot of times it's just by uh, testing it. You know, like I'll access, I used to access this particular location from uh, more the the northwest and used to come in through the middle of an agricultural field and kind of, and I realized there's an old homestead in this this farm in uh, Mercer County, Missouri, and uh, I uh, now I just uh, I, I realize that there's no deer bedding bedded up where I thought they would be. It's kind of not a super thick timber, but it's a it's a draw that leads to this food plot. And now I just walk down the edge of it. I actually mow up a mow a path um, during during the summer, and I kind of keep it. Uh, one thing you do. One here's a little tip is is I keep my paths that I walk into the stand mode all year. And you only, I mean, you just got to mow them maybe once every two, three, four weeks. Because if you mow them, uh, if you mow that some of that longer grass right before the season just one time, that grass gets, uh, the, the stems on it uh, get real hard and crunchy. If you keep it mowed during the year, they're real soft, so so you can access that, that path real quietly. Hmm. Um so yeah, one thing we do is we'll we'll just take a, usually a smaller bush hog or a, uh, some kind of mower that doesn't have you know just you know maybe four or five feet wide is all, and we'll uh, we'll mow our access paths and we'll keep them mowed all year round even to our box lines. So people probably wondering why are we doing that during the middle of summer? Well, it's just to keep those that grass nice and uh, soft. So in the fall, when it dries up a little bit, it's 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 just got uh, soft stems on it. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. Speaking of food plots, another thing I've heard you talk about on this front, um, you've mentioned how you you feel or you've seen on some of your places how it seems like each food plot and the area around it kind of has a king. So, like, there'll kind of be a mature buck that decides to call this plot and that little area home. And because of that, rather than having one big plot that has just one king, I've heard you talk about the idea of having multiple smaller plots, so maybe you can get more mm-hmm. of these "quote unquote" kings or big mature deer to stick around. Can you can you mm-hmm. expand on that? Explain that a little more. Absolutely, it's it's actually a, a strategy we've we've really picked up on the last couple years. And uh, in fact, I did a um, 
uh, segment on uh, Bow Madness this year with juries uh, called King of the Plot. And uh, it was basically describing that exact situation you just mentioned. And the analogy I'll use maybe to, to kind of an, in human terms is imagine, see these big mature bucks that are five plus years old, if they're all dominant and, and they hang out together all year long until the rut. And then they hate each other, you know, they're best friends and they, they hang out in these bachelor groups. But then during the rut, they fight and they beat each other up really bad. And we had a lot of antlers, a lot of bucks on our farms, especially in Iowa. It seemed like that I was like, man, all my all my big bucks get busted up. I mean, they get busted up pretty early. You got to shoot them early if you want them to have a wreck. I mean, it seems like. And so I was like, well, how do you, you, I, I guess it was because we were managing the farms and there was more bigger bucks living there. So I, I wanted to kind of spread them out and see, so they don't run into each other as often. And so, you know, we have a lot of switchgrass. And the the best analogy I can use, it it's kind of might sound goofy, but it might help some people understand. Imagine if you had 15 Mike Tysons, okay? Everybody kind of knows who Mike Tyson is. He's a big, <laughs> giant boxer that, you know, is mean and he beats people up, you know. Yeah. But imagine if you had 15 Mike Tysons in a gymnasium, walking around, playing basketball, whatever. And they're, and, and they're you know, they have this this hormones are at full tilt and they only breed once a year and they're all after going after the same woman, you know, they're going to fight and, and, and beat each other up. And that's, that's what these bucks do. But then imagine if somehow you could put almost in that gymnasium, you put walls up and almost make it like a hotel. So in essence, you're, you're, you're putting, so they can't see each other and it's more like rooms in a hotel. So you, you might be in a hotel right next to another Mike Tyson, but you're kind of you're you're not you're kind of in your segment where you're you're separated from him and you really don't know he's there. I mean, you're so in essence that's kind of what we we've done with food plots. We try to make different areas where a lot of does might hang out, but hopefully they're kind of spread out so that hey, uh, you know, we we've noticed a lot of times we'll sit on one food plot and the same big buck comes out and he'll almost make a round around that food plot. Let's say it's a one acre food plot you know he'll come around and he'll just kind of walk the other smaller bucks off the field have you ever seen that mm-hmm. and yeah. so and and then you know maybe that's the five-year-old but he he's pushing off any other little or smaller buck maybe three-year-old two-year-old and, and sometimes even another five-year-old will come out there but he kind of pushes him and so one's more dominant than the other so if if you could plant another food plot just two or three hundred yards down then maybe that other five-year-old will will go down there, and that's what we've seen actually is happening. And so we plant instead of one, maybe two-acre clover field that might be half brassicas and half soybeans or half clover and half brassicas or something like that, we'll maybe plant two one-acre plots not far from each other, and it seems like they kind of, you know, hey, maybe that non-dominant five-year-old that was just run off the field by the dominant one might now go and kind of hang out in that other clover field because they know that oh, you know that 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 big old buck that's the dominant buck he's always hanging out there so i'm just going to go hang out over here and, and that's and that's actually what they have seemed to happen and and our reconics have told us that and so then you can monitor the reconics and see Oh, well, this buck's hanging out here more more often than not. I'm not, I'm not saying they never go in there. Of course they do, but uh, 
they it just seems like they have a favorite spot or a favorite food plot and that's kind of how we've maybe not a good analogy with uh with Mike Tyson, but that's the best analogy I can I like come up it. with. We try to we try to separate them. That makes sense. Now, do you yeah. try to plant the same thing in each one of those plots so it's not like at one time of year they all all the deer want to be in plot A and then all the deer want to be in plot B at you know late season? Do you try to have the same kind of thing so they do spread out throughout the year, or is it different? Uh, kind of. Sometimes I do. Sometimes I don't. I, I I do know. I can tell you that I usually try to plant clover nearly in every food plot at least around the edges if it's a circle plot or a you know whatever the shape is i i usually try to plant clover in part of that field and the reason is i had actually a biologist come to my farm and oh probably 10 years ago and and said hey if you want to create a deer's habit and you want them to come to this food plot every night he goes plant clover because Clover is going to be there year-round. Even during the winter when they're pawing at it and snow's on the ground, they can at least get to that green underneath the snow and that clover. And clover is pretty much there year-round. So um, clo- I, I do try to have clover in nearly, I would say, 90% of my food plots, uh, even if it's a small amount, because I want deer just getting in the habit of coming there. That makes sense. Uh, if it's a brassica or soybean field or cornfield or something else, then uh, you know that they might die off, or they, you know, let's say it's radishes. Then once the radishes are gone, you know, they, uh, you know, or, or soybeans or something. Once they're gone, they're they're not going to come there anymore. So clover kind of uh, uh, prevents that from happening. Yeah, it's it's that incredible perennial attraction year after year and a lot of the just most of the year it just does the job there's there's no doubt about absolutely that. i've heard mark say and, and several guys you know just clover is a it seems like when we've tracked what where we actually kill these big deer it seems like clover is is king i mean it's just uh it seems like we kill them on clover it, yeah. it you know it seems like they'll be uh, they'll it, it, it's more than 50% of the time it seems like you'll uh, uh they just they just love it yeah it's a yeah. staple in their diet before moving on we are going to take our last break of the day to thank our partners at Whitetail Properties and today continuing my bi-weekly recommendations of resources put together by Whitetail Properties I want to mention another one of their land beat videos and this one's titled creating better whitetail habitat and it features Dr. Craig Harper. He's a guy I've mentioned many times before, and he's one of the foremost experts on managing habitat for whitetails. And in this one, he walks us through how he goes about making decisions on how to improve an area for native vegetation. And he does this by selecting certain trees that he's going to cut or girdle to open up the canopy above this area, letting in more sunlight, which then allows deer-level food to grow. So in this video, Craig does a really good job of, of really, I guess, showing us exactly what he's doing, you know, which trees he's choosing, why he's choosing them, how he's then going to deal with that tree. It's very helpful stuff. So head on over to the Whitetail Properties YouTube channel if you're interested in checking that one out or visit whitetailproperties.com to learn more about their land specialists and the properties they have for sale. Now back to the show. So so we're talking right now, it's uh, it's August 1st today. Um, mm-hmm. 
for me, I usually, August is like a really, really busy month for me in the whitetail woods, a lot of work going on. And then I try to stay out when September hits to, to leave the, mm-hmm. leave the area alone before hunting season. Um, so what are you, what are you doing right now over these next few weeks? What kind of projects do you have coming up? What kind of prep work are you going to be doing here in this last month of summer? Oh gosh, August is filled with <laughs> fall food plots. It's just, uh, we're actually about a week ago we're spraying and killing all the the plots um that we're going to plant brassicas in so um everything like uh, winter bulbs and sugar beets or um uh biologic maximum um uh you know any kind of uh radishes and turnips um things like that um, we are we are planting in August, in the first couple of weeks in August, um, all the way up. You can plant them heck in the Midwest. You can plant them all the way up into September. Well, I try to get mine in usually around mid-August sometime. You know, I I try to ideally if you if you're only planting a, one farm or something, um, I would say you kind of you get it killed down and prepared and ready to plant, and then you just wait uh, right before the rain. And if you can if your job allows you, you can get out just the day before that rain, That then that's ideal. You know, sometimes you don't even have to cultipack it in or roll it in. Some people use different, uh, usually with the brassica, you, you want to be able to, uh, ideally, I usually disc it up uh, or uh, or till it up, and then I'll actually cultipack it and then spread the seed and then cultipack again. And that, that has worked the best for me. Um and then, you know, ideally, if you can do it right before rain, uh, sometimes you don't have to cultipack it in that rain. If it's going to be a strong rain, that'll just pound it in the soil, mm-hmm. and it'll be perfect. So, what about- But that's mainly what I'm doing. And, and, and of course, putting up tree stands and, uh, uh, you know, box blinds or whatever, you know, whatever you hunt out of your, your uh, uh, you know, some, some people don't want to put out... Uh, ground blinds this early because some of them fade or some, you know, they wind will blow them or, you know, um, I don't think you need to. I, I'll, I'll probably usually wait till it depends if you're going to hunt the rut or early season. But, I, you know, if you get them up a couple weeks early, it's usually good enough. Yeah. Are you doing a lot of um, trout camera inventory scouting and that kind of stuff? Absolutely. Do you do a lot of glassing yeah. right now? Yeah. Tell me about what, what you're yeah. doing on that front. Um, do, doing the trail cameras, uh, is kind of the fun because it's the first, you know, you're, you, it's kind of like, uh, all the hunting shows start about this time the new ones get out and then you're checking your trail cameras to see, oh, what he grow into, or did he make it from last year? Maybe a buck disappeared and all of a sudden he's there and he's been there the whole time. He just didn't know, never found his antlers or shed antlers. Uh, so that's kind of fun. It's, you feel like, a a little kid opening, you know, opening presents on Christmas morning, you're just, you know, like, what do I got? What do I got? And, uh, so it's kind of fun. And, and, uh, and then, yeah, we're glassing, glassing fields. Uh, don't have to do that nearly as much. I remember when I was an outfitter, that's all I did. I mean, before trail cameras, I mean, my wife, uh, were like, you ever going to come home at night, you know, and, uh, <laughs> every single night, I mean, I was out just trying to, you know, find the tip of, uh, tip of some velvet antlers out in the back of the bean field, you know, and, uh, the cooler nights were always much better. Uh, I got a couple guys that, uh, I'm, I'm also very lucky to have friends and, uh, that, that, that enjoy this passion of hunting as much as I do. And, and they, uh, they're not scared to work and they, they we all help each other and and 
you know, get on the tractors and spray. And I got a couple guys that I call them farm managers that kind of uh, really help a lot, you know, and they, they do the, a, a lot of the grunt of the work. So, but anyway, they, they called me last night and they were, uh, they were on my Illinois farm and, uh, you know, glassing because I think the high last night, he got down to right before dark, it was like 67 degrees. Yeah, and, a great uh, night. Yeah, and it and and they were like, man, there was bucks everywhere. Every every buck, every deer was up on its feet, and you know, before sundown, and just in the in the bean fields, and just uh, they said they saw a lot of deer. Yeah, love nights like that. I love. Oh, absolutely. Love that summer glassing. So, what's yeah. the what's the plan this year? Do you have do you have some bucks that have made it that you're thinking that you want to target, or are you still waiting to figure that out, or? What's your what's your eye on so far? Uh yeah, it's um it uh we have some we have some mature bucks that uh uh we we're targeting. Um Iowa kind of was tough last year. I had a big kill. Um the f- I had 5 out of my top 6 bucks that we were hoping would make it uh to 2018. We found either shed season or turkey season we found dead. Wow. Um, and I, I don't know. We found one by a road. Of course, you think it got hit by a car. Um, and four others were just, uh, we don't know. You know, we just, I don't know. Uh, again, I, I talk a lot with Mark Drury, and, uh, you know, he thinks it might have been just uh, the touch of EHD because we did, I can't remember, I think we had a really dried, um, we had a dried, uh, August last year, because I remember the food plots I was stressing out weren't growing. Um, but, you know, it, uh, I think June, it rained good last year. I can't remember, actually. The years, it seemed to combine now. Yeah. I'm getting old. I'm almost 50, so I'm, <laughs> I, my mind isn't as good. But, uh, yeah, this year we've had a pretty good um, – I know there's been touches of Missouri that that have got a little drought, but most of Iowa and Illinois have gotten – in fact, a, on my farm in uh, Illinois, just two nights ago, we got four and a half inches. So, wow. just we've gotten just a ton of rain this year. It's been it should be a grow, good growing season for antlers. They always say if it rains a lot and the deer have less stress, and so you know, hopefully EHD is not is not a. I'm knocking on wood right now as I'm talking to you. Mm-hmm. So I'm hoping EHD isn't a factor this year. But so I, I don't know um, where I'm going to go. I, I I need a little bit more time with Reconics um, to see what you know, I'd, I'd take a good inventory of those bucks and which mature bucks are there. And then, and then kind of get a strategy a little bit closer to October 1st, probably yeah. in the last couple of weeks of September, I'll probably really be figuring out where I want to go. Gotcha. I, I feel like from, from watching past segments where you've been on the show or YouTube videos and everything like that, it seems like most years or a lot of years you're hunting bucks that you have history with, you know, that you've seen yeah. over the years or had sheds over the years how do you how do you go about keeping tabs on these deer? What's your process there? And then how do you use that information? Are you, are you really big on looking at past year stuff like like Mark Drury is, or mm-hmm. more so like just focusing on what they're doing right now? Um, what's your approach on that front? Uh, I definitely do. Uh, I think Mark has got. Um, I, I, I didn't say earlier when I was telling you about all those people I've learned from. I mean. The one I've learned from the most in, in the in the last ten years has been Mark. I mean, the mad scientist, as everyone knows him. He's 
uh, gosh, you're going to think it's an advertisement, but I mean, seriously, this guy, he's got almost a photographic memory for just different tasks and strategies and things he's thinking about. And, um, last year we tested out that new app. Um, they let the Drury team test it out and, um, deer test. And, and, uh, he, I remember we have a little Drury, uh, get together every year, every summer where the Drury team gets, goes down and, and, uh, they all get together and they were telling us about him. And he said, it's an algorithm that's basically Terry and, and, and Mark's mind and everything they think about as far as atmospheric pressure to, to weather conditions and every all everything combined all in one and he, he said really it, it's just it's just conditions we're getting from technology now from our phones and we're putting it all together and and they put it in an app and we used that last year and it would say either poor or good or great conditions and you know and it even had hour by hour if it would get better maybe the pressure is rising through the day or the moon was rising at this time and they put it all together in an app, and uh, again using technology to hunt. I I'm, I'm taking I took advantage of it last year, and it was it was dead on. So, wow. but anyway, um, I forgot where I was going with that. But I, oh, I started telling you about uh, Mark and uh, just everything I've learned from him is just yeah. it's just amazing. I mean, I used to text him all the time, like you know, should I be hunting high, low? Should I? And you know, now I. You know, I, I don't have to do that because of that app. But I also, he's just taught me, and I've I've learned a lot myself. And now I've guys texting me, you know, saying where where should I hunt, you know, and I'll right. say like, hey, clovers re- seems to be really good right now, or they they're in radishes, or they're in, you know, maybe the soybeans have dried up enough where they're they're in the soybeans, or maybe the soybeans are are just turning yellow and it's a late planted and they're not in soybeans. So you know. A lot of times we have just a lot of friends texting each other back and trying to communicate where, you know, where it seems like the deer are hanging. Yeah, that that's nice to have that real time network. Um, yeah. Now to, on it's the fun, on the yeah. on the individual buck deal though, you know, when it comes to tracking those deer, are you keeping? Oh yeah, that's where we're. Yeah, like years and years worth of photos that you're that you're keeping tabs on and looking back at, or how do you? How do you just manage all that information? Because I got to believe over three or however many farms you have now, three states at least, there's a number mm-hmm. of different bucks you're kind of following over the years. How how's it work? Well, I've uh, if if you've ever talked to me before, I've I, I do believe that deer are a lot like people. And uh, have you ever? Um, it seems like have you ever maybe gone with your family? You take a vacation about the same time every year, or it seems like you're doing you almost have deja vu and you're like, man, I feel like I've done this again. Well, it's like you're doing the same thing every year. Like all of a sudden, you know, people are golfing and they quit golfing, they get into hunting or it's about this time of year or, you know, they're just habitual. And I think deer that way too. Um, I think maybe even you can combine it with when doe, a certain doe comes into estrus. Uh, I think within, I've heard from, uh, deer farm managers, they say the doe will come in the same day almost every year. You know, if they come in November 3rd, they, that same doe in that high fence area will come in every... So it's probably the very same in the wild. Uh, I, again, I, I, that, I don't know that for sure, but I'm assuming that. So um, if if a certain doe comes in and all of a sudden you get a big buck on camera in in a certain area of your farm, um, or on a public ground or whatever. And I think, you know, I've seen a lot of articles written that, that say, you know, that, that deer 
will, will be in that area again the same year. Maybe he lives two miles away, but he comes over to this farm November 6th through the 9th or something like that. I I believe in that. So we'll go back through pictures in the past. Um, you know, if I'm in a, if I'm on a certain farm and I have a north wind to hunt, and maybe there's two different food plots that I can hunt with a north wind uh, for that food source. Maybe they're in radishes, and it's a north wind, and so I want want to hunt radishes on a north wind. I'll go back between those two, and I'll look at I keep all my reconnaissance photos like in files by food plot. Or by camera, like if they're in, you know, I'll name a certain part of the timber or a pond, I'll name it Frog Pond or something weird like that, so that I'll keep that file on my computer with all those pictures from that camera from years and years and years. So then I'll go back during that time frame, you know how you can group them um, and you can look on your computer and you can have it group chronologically yeah. uh, in order by date. So I'll go back during that time frame. So if I'm hunting... October 1st, then I'll look at October 1st pictures for those two different food plots, and I'll be like, which deer was in there? Was there a deer in there? Oh, boy, look at this deer. I have daylight pictures of this buck. He should be six now, you know, or stuff like that. Or, of course, you look at the most recent. That's probably what I look at first, what deer's been there on their feet, um, you know, and I'm going. But if I don't have any recent deer in there, I'll, I'll look you know, in the past and be like, okay, what's, and very often, very often, um, that deer that, that maybe wandered in from somewhere else is there again during that same time. And boom, you're, you're there ready. And you know, a year later, he's going to be there. It's just crazy. So, yeah. I mean, it's kind of fun to try to figure all that out. Yeah. Yeah. I've definitely you know? done a lot of that, that too, and been, been watching that and definitely seems to be something to it, but something I wonder about a lot is do you think that these patterns, I guess we'll call them, do you think it's condition dependent or not? So by that I mean, let's say you got pictures last year of this buck on your radish plot on October 1st and 2nd. So coming into this year, you'd say, okay, there's probably a good chance he's going to be here maybe around October 1st, 2nd, 3rd, something like that. But do you try to match it with the wind direction that he had last year or the weather conditions? Um, so maybe there was a cold front last year. So do you worry about that? Or do you say, I don't care what the conditions were like last year. I still think that annual pattern exists. There's a chance at the same time. Um, good questions. Uh, I usually, uh, I, I don't, I usually don't try to match the wind condition. Uh, unfortunately i don't know the i i don't know i think mark does though um but i don't go back and look at what the wind direction was when that reconyx picture i wish the camera had the technology and they do i'm sure some of them do now that uh would show the wind you know that it knows that you're in you know um decatur county iowa or whatever and mm -hmm. it, it can match during that time what uh, the you know it was a west wind at 4 p.m. when that picture was taken, but the reconyx doesn't show that right now. So um, I I don't go back. I know that Mark has talked about in the past going back and and matching that up. Now usually I'm only hunting that tree or that food plot based on 
a certain wind direction anyway, usually, you know, like a northerly wind or, any, you know, maybe a certain food plot I can only hunt with an e- any east wind. Or sometimes I have some that are really specific that, you know, are only a south-southwest wind. I can only hunt this one tree. A lot of times, you know, if I can filter it down so it blows down that creek, um, stuff like that. But but most of the time, you usually have a little bit better pick, like any southerly wind will work for this tree or this box blind. And uh, so usually I'm only going to be in there on a – so I, I just kind of go, hey, I know he's in this area. I really the, – the old articles that used to be in North America, Whitetail and Deer and Deer Hunting and all those magazines where deer will always walk into the wind – I, I know that's not true anymore. I think that people used to think that, and deer. I do. I do know deer live by their nose, but during the rut, you know, they're just going from doe bedding area, one bedroom to the next bedroom, going, "Hey, is there another hot doe in this area?" I, I, I've seen them walk downwind, upwind, crosswind. I've seen them. I've, you know, mentally seen it myself, so I know that I, I don't believe they always walk into the wind. So, I don't pay as much attention to that as. Uh, as much as when the older mature buck, the older it seems like they get, the the smaller home range they have. So yeah, again, like people, the older guys, you know, they probably don't travel as much as they used to, and they sit in their chair as they get older, and they kind of just, you know, they've been there, done that, and they just happy sitting around home, being around family. You know, I think mm-hmm. uh, I think deer are kind of like that too. They just, you know. Hey, they know they're safe and secure in this this area, this hundred yard, this hundred acre timber, and I'm going to live here the rest of my life. You know, um, I have seen though. I, uh, to, I have seen uh, for some reason it seems like I've seen a few six year old deer. Mark, talk, Mark, and I talked about this a couple years ago. Um, six year old deer. Sometimes I, I've seen them. If six, you'd think it's super mature. But every now and then, I've seen some six-year-old deer will just wander. Uh, I had this buck. Uh, we just found him dead. He's one of the five I was just telling you about that, that found dead. He's, he was eight. Um, but at six years old, he literally was, um, he was, he actually was over 200 inches at six. And uh, I was going to start hunting him on the 25th of October. And I got a, I had a cell camera. And I got a cell camera. And I came out of a meeting that I had. And I was like I said, I was going to leave the next day. And I, uh, on my cell camera, it gave me a text, and it was him with half his rack broke off at the base. Oh, wow! <laughs> and I just went into depression that season. But, <laughs> um, but anyway, he he was a wanderer that year, and we saw him everywhere. And he, he only had half a rack, but he uh, he just was on every camera. I had probably twenty five cameras on that farm. It was a big farm, seven hundred and seven acres, and. Uh, I had him. I had him. I bet you seriously, probably 23 out of 25 cameras. He was just one of those deer. But then at seven, he tightened back up, and at eight, he tightened back up even more, and he was just real homebody. So sometimes they do weird things. You know, they're not always predictable, but um, wow. it, it's fun trying to figure them out. Yeah, yeah. That's that is what keeps us coming back year after year. No doubt about that. So yeah. you you've talked about you know, a lot about kind of what we're doing from a management standpoint, how you're tracking these deer. And like you talked about earlier, you've got a great situation. You've got a lot of mature bucks. You have several different properties you can hunt. You're in a terrific 
place that some people might feel they can't relate to, but your last season, from what I understand, is something that a lot of guys can probably relate to. I want to talk to you about that because, correct me on this if I'm wrong, but I think I saw that you didn't kill your first buck of the year last year until December 2nd after... That's right. Yeah, and I think I saw that was 60 days of hunting, more than 100 individual sits. That's something, that kind of challenge, that kind of frustration... I know I've experienced that. I'm sure a lot of other people have. Mm-hmm. Um, what was that like for you? How did that, you know, what was that, what was the mental side of that? Cause at least for me, I know that's where the big challenge comes, especially after months and months of going at it. I'm sure mm-hmm. that was tough. Can you, can you talk about that? Oh yeah. I remember it well. <laughs> <laughs> I, uh, basically what I did is I set my sights on one deer and I went after one deer and you know, it was, uh, he was a giant and, you know, I, I just said, Hey, I've had a lot of years where, you know, you, it, to me, I, it, these stories about even tracking an eight year old that we find dead is just as rewarding to me. Um, and, and knowing, just knowing how he acted like he at six, he went crazy and while, you know, he was like a little kid running everywhere and then, and then finding him dead, you know, it was sad when we found him, but we, we figured he disappeared off cameras. So I was like, I bet he died, and sure enough, we found him. But um, it's not all about the kill to me. I, d- I, don't have to, um, I don't have to kill a buck, although during the season I, I think a lot of my friends would, would say quite the opposite because I get stressed out. I, it, does, it, <laughs> yeah. does, it is nice when you kill one early season and kind of the stress is off of you. And I think part of that is for the Drury team because, you know, they give us all these points and rewards if you – if you get one on the board, you know, and that's how they, they have their system set up. Um, but honestly to me, I, uh, it started out outfitting. I love to watch others harvest the biggest deer of their life. And, and outfitting, of course you get to see that quite often, especially when you get guys that are from states that maybe don't, um, grow as, as big of bucks as the Midwest. And they would come in and they, you know, they give you these bear hugs, uh, I remember I had these these brothers, these three brothers that would always come, and they were from out east. and And every time I'd ha- I'd have to almost wear football pads because if if w- even one of them killed a big buck, they would just tackle me, and I and they would. <laughs> it was so fun. I mean, it's just so fun. And w- I was I have three daughters, and uh, eighteen, fifteen, and seven. So I've taken my older two many times and they've each harvested at least gosh uh, i think the oldest one's harvested uh five big bucks and a bunch of big turkeys you know big mature toms and and my 15 year olds i think she's harvested uh four four big ones and, and a bunch of does and all that and just the smile on their faces and the excitement um of others taking other it's just i mean the friends I'm, we kind of got like a group of friends that we hang out with that uh that all help in food plots and they all help strategize where should we put this food plot how you know and stuff like that and it's just uh it's fun kind of they're they kind of know their member they they get their their member of the text group they maybe a group text and hey i got this uh, and they know to be super secretive too you know like we don't we don't want the neighbors knowing about them. I'm sure they know them because they got pictures of them too, but sometimes they don't. So we, we don't tell, you know, we, we keep that pretty tight lipped and, uh, it, it's just fun, uh, 
figuring it all out and, 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 and being a part of a group, the camaraderie, you know, sharing around when we're cooking at night or around the grill or campfire and stuff like that. Or maybe in the summer, even fishing in a boat and talking about, I wonder what this deer, we name them all too. And that's kind of, everybody makes fun of us, but you know, when you have different, it's just a lot easier to call them a certain name versus yeah, yeah. Hey, the big 12 point, you know, or maybe there's two big 10 points or an eight point and it's hard to imagine if you didn't have names for your kids or for, you know or your friends i mean you'd just say hey the brown-haired kid yeah. you know <laughs> it's a lot easier to have names that's for sure it's a lot easier you just name them so that's what we do yeah no i can totally relate to that that aspect of it it's a lot of the process the process is what's really what i think is so compelling. Yep. The, the kill, of course, like you said, yes, that's what we're ultimately shooting for. But yep. everything else that goes into it is what makes it so special, I think. Um, so you had a heck of a process trying to get after this one big deer. What happened? <laughs> I, I was unsuccessful. I, I, I Believe it or not, I only saw him once, but I had Reconyx pictures of him just over and over and over. And, and uh you know, some were even daylight, so I was like, man, why, I'm just uh, I, I'm just picking the wrong stand. Every I, I've never set so many stands for a deer. I, I literally got aggressive on this deer, and and I'm usually not aggressive. I just kind of wait for the right conditions, And but he was really big, and I was like, I, you know, I, uh, I probably got a little too aggressive. All of a sudden, he disappeared on November 9th, and I kept on thinking, well, I just don't, you know, uh, sometimes I didn't even go in and check the reconics pictures because you're going in right in where he lives, and I I just kind of wanted to stay out of there thinking he was there. But then even after uh, uh, I, I just even after I checked him, you know, a couple weeks even after that, I, there was just none. He just disappeared, and I don't know where he went. Um, uh, I, he just so finally I just kind of gave up and went off to another deer and. Never, I've never seen him again. Never found his sheds. He just disappeared. I hope he, we never found him dead. So, I, I don't know, but uh, wow, it, it was worth it. I would do the same thing again this year if it, if you know, I, he was that big. He was like you know, two fifteen big. Oh, wow. You know, like world class, once in a lifetime. If once in maybe three or four lifetimes, you know. So I, I would do the same thing again. Wow. Uh, yeah. Yeah, that's a tough thing. I, I I've been in a similar situation, although not with a 215 inch buck. But uh, here in here in Michigan, um, a big buck for us out here is like 130 inch. And so I've been after right. this buck that last year he was a, I think he was a five year old last year. So it was it was him or bust here. And same kind of thing. I put all my time into this deer. I canceled other trips. I just obsessed over him trying to make it happen. And you know, similar to your kind of deal, he disappeared on the 14th of November. And, um, then I kept thinking, oh, well, he's got to be around. So the late season came around and I tried for him more and nothing, nothing, nothing. And then all of a sudden the season was done and I realized, well, you did nothing but chase around this ghost that might've been yeah. gone for the last month and a half and, uh, didn't fill a single buck tag because of it. Um, yeah. so you, yeah, yeah, I was in a similar situation where I was sitting there post season thinking, should I have done something different? Should I do something different this year? Um, but to your point, it's, uh, that that chase though even just trying yeah um, absolutely hey and i cool. do want to point out you know i i know a lot of your listeners are nationwide and they're not hunting the the 
as far as the score goes. Um, but to me, um, it's all about setting your sights on a certain deer. Like there was a buck, um, gosh, I'm, problem is is trying to we name him now as i said i'm getting old i can't remember his name but oh we call him mossy oak actually and uh he had there was a picture of him with losing his velvet and it was just an eight pointer and he was probably when you said 130 reminded me we put him right in the 130 range and but we knew he was a six-year-old and he was on my mercer county uh missouri farm and uh we called him Mossy Oak, and we and we went, and he was a, a regular on this. And I was like, man, he's showing up a lot on this one camera. It was the same uh, food plot I was talking about earlier. It's kind of smack dab right in the middle of my my farm. And uh, sure enough, we go in, and and what I'm getting at is I can get just as excited about once I set my mind on a deer. I don't care if he's a hundred inches or seven years old or four years old or whatever, you know. It's 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 just about the um, it's just challenge you know the challenge can I I like going after deer that we know about and you know I I told Mark last year I was like I've never had a giant deer walk in that I don't know because of all the technologies cameras and everything now he says you will he goes you wait it's exciting because all of a sudden the giant deer comes in and you've never you're like I don't know that deer what yeah. I I cannot recall I mean a real big one I've seen you know nice deer come in that I don't know, but I haven't seen a mega giant come in and, and he said, you will, it'll happen. It's just, and it's really cool. But, um, I, I going back to, I, I, I get just as excited shooting, you know, 125 inch deer, uh, in, in the Midwest as I do about killing 180 inch deer. Uh, and my heart beats just as much once you, you know, and he comes into the food plot or he comes into the timber where you're at and you know that you might get a shot, that adrenaline, uh, I've, uh, I've never done any drugs other than alcohol, but I, I have always said, I imagine that there's no drug out there that can make you feel like that. Mm, yeah. Um, and that excitement, it's just, it's just awesome. And that's, that's why I hunt, you know, and, and it's just as exciting too, when you're behind the camera filming one of your buddies yeah. and you know, you almost like don't want to mess up and you want to get them <laughs> on film for him. And yeah. it's just, it's almost more challenging. It's harder for the cameraman, but it's, uh, I, I just wanted to point that out. I don't want people to think that, you know, a, you know, the guy lives in the Midwest, he's got all these farms and he's only after the top end deer. It's, 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 that's not the case at all. I, I tell you what, we, um, uh, Scott Manifold, who's who I hunt with the most, and we talk about it. Uh, we still feel that same way, even with does. We love hammering the does. You know, we usually do it late season, but uh, um, it, it's fun. It's just when you're able to harvest a deer and then eat the meat from that deer. Um, you know, that's that's something special about that. It's like yeah. you know, you feel like a pioneer or something back in the day. Yeah. <laughs> that's the way to do it. So, yeah. so speaking of that, you know, that feeling you get there when you, you set your sights on a deer, you set a goal and you're actually able to, to get a shot at that deer. You have been in a situation now over the years where you have been able to see a lot of big mature bucks come in and you've gotten shots at a lot of big mature bucks. Um, yeah. so more than a lot of people, you've been in that situation that a lot of us dream about but maybe we don't get to have that moment as many. So we don't have as much experience handling the moment of truth with that dream buck in front of us. Um, can you talk to us a little bit about how you've been able to get good at handling that moment of truth? And, and another thing I'll add, I'll, I'll kind of give you a double question. I've also seen a couple past 
uh, shows or YouTube videos that you were in where you missed a deer, but you came right back and were able to overcome that adversity. And like the next day it killed that same deer. You were able mm-hmm. to get over that mistake or whatever happened and you got right back to it. So how do you, how do you handle all this mentally, whether it be on your average shot or your average situation, or when you, you blow it one day and you can turn around and flip the switch and, and get it done the next? Well, you know, I, I think when I was younger, like when, uh, I'm not super old, I'm 49, but I think up until about, I remember making a statement to a, a guy I worked with. Um, and I was like, you know, somehow I'm able to stay calm until after the shot. And then I would go crazy. And, uh, I, I kind of, um, I kind of was, I feel bad. I, I was kind of bragging to him in a way. Just It was just he and I were close friends. And I was like, yeah, I'm able to kind of have uh, ice in my veins until that time. And then the last, I shouldn't even have said that because like the last five years, I've blown so many shots and missed so many big bucks. And it's just like <laughs> the older I get, the worse I get. And so I, I, I blew it by, I, I think, bragging, you know, or, or, or just teasing him and saying, you know, uh, we're just kind of uh, – jarring each other but uh you know i think if you can uh i i do remember this story i remember uh you know i i don't i don't see stan Potts anymore but i i used to but i i remember one time he told me he was like what he does to control it and i i've you i've told a lot of people this story he said he used to almost get mad at the deer so somehow he would like when that deer showed up he would get this mental attitude in his brain over and over like he would be, be so mad at that deer. I'm gonna, I'm gonna shoot you, deer. Whatever he said to himself, you know, to, to kind of keep himself calm, um, but to almost overcome it, whatever can go on between your ears, you know, you know, a lot can go on. A lot of people are like worried, and they're checking their, you know, their their arrow falls off the rest and all this stuff. I do try to eliminate uh, as many things as I can. Like I use a whisker biscuit. Um, a lot of people laugh at that too. I I think it's the best. I've used it since the day came out years and years ago, and uh, it just eliminates a lot of things that can go wrong. If you can do that, uh, you know whether you see that buck walking into your stand and you have to get on the ground and crawl, it's a lot easier for. Uh, there's a lot of rest now, different rest that'll hold your arrow on there instead of just you know kind of resting on there. Um, things like that. Uh, you, I use a range finder to, you know, put the odds in my favor so I know what that that uh, yardage is. And of course, I practice a lot too. I try to practice every day, at least a couple, even if I only shoot one or two arrows, to make sure it's on. Um, after I travel state to state, I'll shoot my bow too because it being in the car or whatever, different different temperatures in your car, in your house, to back out in the cold. I just want to make sure everything is uh, is on. Uh, did I answer your question? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think that that's helpful hearing about some of the things you're doing and, and Stan's, Stan's idea there. Yeah. I, I don't necessarily do that. I don't necessarily get mad, but I've noticed, I know Brick, I hunted with Brick Stewart, who's on the jury team. And he used to say, he's like, man, how do you, I remember a big buck came in, we were hunting together and the goal was for him to kill a big buck. He was coming up to Iowa and I said, well, there's one buck, there's one buck I want to shoot, and there's a bunch of bucks that you can shoot. And there's, and uh, uh, I can't, uh, let me see, it was a buck called Stallback, and it was years ago. 
And I remember I was like, Starbucks in this area, but he probably won't show up. But I said, as soon as I say that, you know he will. And sure enough, first buck we see come in is Starbucks. So <laughs> I have to get the camera to him, and uh, and he's got to put down his bow, and I have to grab my bow, which is hanging real high in the tree. And, you know, and he was just like, I can't believe he, he – Brick, Brick is so passionate about, about whitetail hunting that – when he sees a big buck, he gets, I mean, it's, you know, he's literally like a five-year-old waiting to open that present. I mean, he's, <laughs> he gets shaken and everything. I love it. I love it. I, and, uh, it, it's just awesome to see it. And, uh, but, you know, I was able to stay calm and, and get the shot off. And, uh, he nicknamed me the werewolf after, after that. He's like, man, you were just so calm. And then after I shot him, I just couldn't even hardly stand up, you know. <laughs> but I, I don't know. I, I think it's, you know, have, have you ever, uh, you know, have, have you ever seen, uh, if you're with anybody that ever got in an accident, car accident, some people kind of freak out and some people stay real calm until yeah. everybody's safe. And I, I've luckily been able to be one of the guys that can be calmer. Now, last few years, I don't know, but uh, in my younger days, I, I think I was able to, I got to figure out what I was doing back then and, and go back to that. But I, I was when I was younger, I was able to stay calm. Yeah, it's it's no so. easy task, that's for sure. Um, yeah. So I've got one last question for you because I know we're short on time here, um, but okay. I want to ask you one thing here. What do you? And I and I ask this because a lot of the people I talk to that work um, that film for the juries, a lot of them, just like you did earlier, point to Mark or Terry as, as a mentor or someone who's helped them or someone they've learned a lot Absolutely. from. Absolutely, yeah. Um, yeah. But is there anything that you do differently from the juries or that you believe differently where they they say X and you're like, eh, no, I think Y. Is there anything like that? Hmm. Uh Boy, nothing really comes to my mind. Uh, I I will say, you know, um, I've been in the industry going, you know, I used to go on the ATA show years ago, and I've been to all, when I was an outfitter, I went to all these shows. One thing that I, I it's, it's not different, so I'm really not answering your question, but I will say one thing that just came to my mind that I, that I love about Mark and Terry that they do right is you know they're they're some of the biggest guys in the industry, and I think when someone else, even another TV show that they're maybe competing against or whatever, when somebody else uh, um, kills a big deer, it seems like those guys are genuinely happy for him. Where instead of looking at it like competition, like hey, that's another show they're competing against, so they they really they killed a giant two hundred something this year. I think those guys are just different and they're not, there's no jealousy. Uh, and, and that's the way everyone, I wish everyone can, can, uh, replicate that mindset and just be happy if your neighbor kills a big buck or if, uh, you know, a close friend of yours or, or, you know, a lot of times you see a lot of jealousy and it hurts the whole industry. And when, when they, they fight over big bucks and everything, it's just like, gosh, you know, just be happy for me. You know, sometimes your neighbors got to get them. Sometimes you are, but, um, I've, I've seen it ruin relationships, uh, uh, in, 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 in within my own, uh, you know, family of friends, uh, I've seen, I've seen guys getting fights and me getting fights back in the day. And 
jealousy over it. So, you know, I'm talking a little bit to myself too, but I think we I've gotten better at it by learning from those guys of, of what, what not to do and, and be the, be a good person and try to just be genuinely happy for other guys. And I, I, that's the only thing that really comes to my mind. It wasn't not what, what they do different, but what they, what they do so right. Yeah. Well, I think that's, I think that's a good, it's a good message to end with because this stuff is, it is supposed to be fun. It, it's, it's an yeah. opportunity to, to share in a wonderful activity with friends and family. And uh, it's just, you know, all the, the Facebook envy. And like you said, the jealousy, it just, it does, it does no one any good. So yeah, no, no, no place for it. Yeah, that's a, that's a great reminder. So Tom, yeah. I mean, I really appreciate you taking the time to do this. This has been fun. Yeah, Mark, I, I appreciate the invitation and, uh, hopefully we can draw more young deer hunters to the sport and, uh, uh, that's, that's Scott, Scott Manifold. That's like I said, he's the, he's the main partner I hunt with now. He's got more time than Mike Clemenson. And, uh, we talked a lot about, you know, what, what are we going to do? We have to pick a theme for the Drury's every year of what we're going to name a show or something. And, mm-hmm. uh, and I, I, I just told him this year, I was like, and he agreed. He, I was like, you know, let's just, let's just try to teach as many people as we can how 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 we're successful or what we've learned or maybe what we've learned not to do whatever it might be just uh just like we've learned from others let's try to do the same thing and help others to uh to be successful so that's that's kind of why i when you when you uh emailed me and said would you like to be on the show i said you know i i, I i'm not a self-promoter i don't uh I, I'm not out there just saying, "Hey, look at me with this big buck." I I, I hope that is is the message I do not portray whatsoever. I, I really just uh, enjoy helping others, and and if I've had some people come up to me and go, "I learned," you know, I saw you on this, and I I learned from it, and that worked for me, and that's you know, that's kind of that's kind of the biggest reward you can get. Yeah, no, I so. think that's I think that's that's an awesome goal, and I think you're doing it. I think a lot of people are seeing the success you're having, and and you guys have been able to do a good job of of helping share how you guys are able to do that. And today, I think definitely happened again. So, thank you, Tom, and man, best of luck in 2018. Hope you have an awesome season. Yeah, keep me posted how you do, and send me some pictures. All right, bud. Sounds like a plan. And that's gonna do it, folks. Hope you enjoyed this one. Um, you know, as we talked about, Tom is involved with Jury Outdoors, and I do want to mention, you know, you may have been listening in the past to the 100% Wild podcast, which was the show that I was doing with Jury Outdoors. I've had to step away from that because of other projects I'm working on, but Matt Jury is continuing the podcast with Tim Chelsvik, I think is how you say his last name. Um, Tim, if you're listening, forgive me if I butchered that, but they're continuing the podcast, so be sure to stay tuned for that. And and actually, coincidentally, I believe I just saw that Tom was on the most recent episode of the 100% Wild podcast, too. There was no communication there. Uh, that's not on purpose, but it kind of works out well. So if you enjoyed our conversation today with Tom, check out 100% Wild to get more from him, too. So with that all said, just want to remind you, if you haven't left a rating or review on iTunes, that's amazing. If you could, I would give you a high five if I saw you in person. If you told me that, big thanks in advance. Make sure also that you're following us. That's Wired to Hunt on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, uh, the YouTube channel as well. And finally, most importantly, I just want to thank you all for listening. I appreciate you taking the time. I appreciate you being a part of this community. I mean, I sit behind this desk all on my own here every week putting these things together, and then I get to put this out into the world, and I hear from so many of you about what you're learning from these things. If you're enjoying them, uh, that means just it means a ton. So thanks for that. 
Thanks for being a part of everything we're doing here. And until next time, stay wired to hunt. Outdoor adventure won't wait for engine problems. Things like hard starts, rough performance, and lost fuel economy are often caused by fuel gum and varnish buildup. Seafoam can help your engine run better and last longer. You simply pour a can into your gas tank. Hunters and anglers rely on seafoam to keep their engines running the way it should the entire season. So pick up a can of seafoam today at your local auto parts store or visit seafoamworks.com to learn more. Hey, if you guys like to cook outdoors and you ought to, you should check out the Weber Slate Rust Resistant Griddle. So this is a carbon steel cooktop that's safe for metal tools. It's pre-seasoned with food-safe oils and ready to cook on right out of the box. It's the griddle that stays ready, not rusty. This griddle heats evenly edge to edge, reaching all the way up to 500 degrees. Get fired up for your new Weber Slate rust-resistant griddle.